great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you are new or visiting, uh, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you're here. We're going to be diving back into our uh, new series through the, the Old Testament book of Ruth. But before uh, we do that, I just want to make mention to you that next Sunday, after this service at 1215 upstairs in the youth room, we're going to have a, a 2020 mission trip info luncheon. So yes, there will be food. Uh, we do need you to RSVP. And so this is not a commitment to go on a mission trip with us. This is just, hey, like you're on the fence. Uh, maybe you know you want to go. Maybe you just want some more info about where we're going, what we're going to be doing uh, in the days ahead. Would encourage you to RSVP. We actually have a website on the screen for you right now for you to go and uh, register for the lunch in there, newlifesend.com. Uh, because here, here's what I know. I know that our God is a global God, and I know that Jesus is a global Savior. He's not just an American Savior, and he has given us, as his disciples, a global commission to leave these four walls. Like, we haven't been called to live in just a little Christian bubble, right? He's called us into our neighborhoods and our cities and all the way to the ends of the planet with the greatest news ever told, that there's a God who loves people and he's made a way of redemption for them. And so that's just, man, if you're new here, you need to know that about us. That's, that's what we're about here. We're about taking this glorious good news outside of these four walls. And so uh, I think our youth room holds like 60, 65 people. Man, I would love to see that luncheon uh, just absolutely packed out uh, next Sunday. And so uh, if you love Jesus, I'll see you there. And, uh, and if not, oh. Uh, I'll let you figure that out. All right, just kid, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, if, you were here, if you were here two weeks ago, um, you know that Ruth is this really fascinating, really a captivating little book that has a lot to teach us about God, yes, but, but also it has a lot to teach us about ourselves. It's probably, as we said, one of the greatest love stories ever told. It's a story of hope lost, of redemption found, all of those things. Ruth is this little love story that in many ways is a microcosm of God's big love story. And so it's like this little love story whose purpose is to point us to the big love story. And so if you have a Bible, uh, why don't you go ahead and grab that, turn it on, head for the book of Ruth in your Old Testament. We're gonna, we're gonna park in the first half of chapter two this morning. As you get there, uh, let me just remind you of where we left off two weeks ago. The narrative in chapter one honestly opens with a, a pretty dark, desperate, almost depressing scene, right? It's this time of uh, moral chaos in the nation of Israel. It's kind of this picture of violence, of lawlessness. People were worshiping false idols and gods. And on top of all of that, we learned that a famine had struck the land. And so people are hungry. The economy has tanked. People are losing their jobs. People can't find jobs. You can just imagine the scene. This is a bad picture that, that gets painted for us in the first chapter of Ruth. And so we learn about a family that's in Bethlehem. And so the father's name is Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. They have two boys, Malon and Kilion. And this family, in the middle of all this chaos in Israel, the middle of the famine, they make a fateful decision to move to an enemy country called Moab. So they move to Moab, and as we said a couple weeks ago, Moab was actually a nation that had its beginning uh, from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And history teaches us that the Moabites 
were actually a really evil people. They were very wicked. Uh, they worshiped this um, demonic god called Chemosh, and they would actually do infant sacrifices to this demonic god. And God had warned his people, the nation of, of Israel, and he, he just said to them, essentially, hey, listen, don't, you are not to link arms with, you are not to intermarry these people groups who worship idols or worship false gods, because if you do that, it's, it's not gonna go well for you. And yet, this, this family in Bethlehem, they decide to take things into their own hands, and they move 50 miles across the Dead Sea to this wicked nation called Moab. They're there for about 10 years. And in Moab, Elimelech, the dad, dies. The sons, Malon and Kilion, unsurprisingly, they, they marry these Moabite women who don't, don't love God, they don't fear God, right? They're idol worshipers. And uh, so they marry these Moabite women. And then both the sons, Malon and Kilion, die as well. And so now the mom, Naomi, is left all alone. And so you can just imagine, if your spouse, if all of your kids died and just a short span of time, how devastated you would be. And that's exactly the place that Naomi finds herself. She's heartbroken. She's absolutely crushed. She's lost her husband. And if that weren't enough, now she's lost both of her sons. And so she, she decides to return home, go back to, to Bethlehem, to go back to the, the place where God's presence resides, go back to where his people live, and one of her daughter-in-laws named Ruth decides to come with her. Now, we don't know all the details behind it, but somehow in this span of time, Ruth is miraculously converted. And Ruth leaves her idolatry and all the gods that she worshiped, and she begins to love and follow the God of the Bible. And so she leaves everything that she had ever known in her home country of Moab, her family, her friends, and she goes with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to the nation of Israel, back to Bethlehem. Now, at this point, as we've already said, Naomi is a completely broken woman, but woman because she's not only grappling with pain, she's actually in a place of bitterness, the text tells us. And so if you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Naomi's name literally means sweet. And so if you're, if you're from the South or if she would have been from the South, her nickname probably would have been Sweetie, right? Or, or sweetie pie, but there's this, there's this part towards the end of chapter one where people call her uh, sweetie or Naomi, and she says, no, don't, don't call me sweetie anymore. She says, call me Mara, call me bitter, because the Lord has dealt harshly with me. And so she's just in this pain of, of being wrecked in this situation where she feels like she's lost everything. She's in this place in her life where she honestly just feels like probably that God has forgotten about her. And here's, here's what I know for, for most of us, for the majority of us in this room this morning, we have at some point in our lives been in a somewhat similar place, haven't we? Just a hard place, a place of, of loss, a place of pain, a place of confusion, a place where you're thinking, God, do you even exist? God, why, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me alone in this traumatic situation? Maybe, maybe for you, you're actually there right now. And I can remember at least two, three, maybe four times in my life where I've been in that place myself. I can remember when Cheryl and I first moved um, to Indonesia like a decade ago. Um, man, I would love to tell you 
that uh, we were, man, we were in our 20s and we were so naive and we were gonna save the world, right? And, and I would love to tell you, we, we stepped off the airplane and it was just like this glorious picture. We were sharing the gospel of Jesus with everybody and everybody's believing and, and man, we're just, everybody's getting baptized and it's just this awesome romantic picture. We just lived happily ever after. I wish that I could tell you that that was our story, but that would be a lie. Because the reality is we got over there and everything was hard. Everything was really hard and everything stunk. Man, we didn't, we didn't know the language. We didn't particularly like the culture. We felt largely unsupported by our, our team over there. Cheryl got pregnant like two months into our time over there and so we're trying to learn the language. I'm trying to teach at the English Center her pregnancy turns into a high-risk pregnancy almost from the word go. So now my wife is on bed rest for months. We're thinking we're gonna lose our baby multiple times in the process. And during that season, I can just remember praying to God and just saying, God, what are you doing? God, what are you, what are you doing? We, we've come out here to, to serve you. We didn't come out here because we wanna live here. This is not a vacation. We came out here for you. God, and everything is hard and my wife is sick in bed and my baby is maybe gonna die and I'm, I'm trying to take care of them and I'm trying to learn the language and, and navigate culture and teach classes and I have no friends. God, why have you brought me here just to abandon me here? And I can remember distinctly just, just feeling that. Now, God in his grace walked us through that and brought us through that season and we can look back now and we had a wonderful two and a half years over there. That baby that we thought we were gonna lose is now my beautiful 12-year-old daughter, Haley. And then we can look back now and see God's fingerprints all over our time there. But I'm gonna tell you, in that moment, it sure felt like abandonment. It sure felt like it. And so here's, here's kind of the big idea. We're gonna put this on the screens for you before we even dive into the text. Here's kind of the, the big idea of our time together. Even when God is silent, even when God is silent, he is not absent. He is never absent. All right, let's dig in. Chapter two, starting in verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. That's an important term we'll come back to. And we also need to note that this guy is actually related to their family, which is also important. So she had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now, let's pause the narrative right there because the narrator just introduced us to a new character named Boaz who is going to become one of the central characters of the rest of our story. Now, here's what we learn about Boaz straight away. His name literally means, the word Boaz literally means strength is within him. Now, names in the Hebrew culture, it's not like our day. Names in those days were typically tied to the character of the person. And so we learn right away that Boaz was a strong man. We also learn that he's what, uh, the, in the Hebrew, they would call a worthy man. Now, this is, this is Hebrew terminology that, that speaks either to a physical strength. So you can kind of think of like a, a, like a war hero, same terminology used about Gideon, right? This, the mighty man of valor. So maybe physical strength that could also be used 
to describe a man of strong moral character, and it could even be used to describe a man of great means or, or a man who had great wealth. And the truth of the matter is, all of those things were true about Boaz. Boaz is just a really impressive dude, right? Boaz, Boaz is the dude that all guys want to grow up to be like, and he's the guy that all girls want to grow up and marry. He's that guy, right? It's kind of disgusting. You ever known anybody like that? That's, like, that's Boaz. He's just the dude everybody wants to be. And so Ruth and Naomi are now back in Bethlehem. They've made the long 50-mile journey across the Dead Sea from Moab back to Bethlehem, but they are destitute. You gotta remember they're both recently widowed, which in that culture was a sentence of poverty. And so they would have been impoverished. They would have been hungry after a long journey. They would have been homeless at this point. Man, we don't, we don't know if they're living under a tent or under a bridge or in somebody's backyard, but we don't, we don't know. But we know that they are destitute. And so Ruth looks to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, let me go out. Let me go out and glean in the fields. I'm gonna find some favor with somebody. I don't know anybody, but I'm gonna find some favor. I trust the Lord that he's gonna give me favor with one of the owners and let me see if I can bring us some food. Now, here, here's, what you, here's what you need to know. In the Old Testament, God instructed his people, both in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, that they were not to harvest all of their fields. They were not to harvest all of their crop, but they were to leave the outside margin of their fields so that the poor could come and they could glean, they could harvest, and they could eat. This was God's way in the old days of caring for the poor and for the widows and for foreigners. And I think this tells us much about who God is. This tells us a lot about his character, about what he values, that he cares for the marginalized in our society, that he loves and cares for the poor and the widow and the orphan. Now, remember this about Ruth. She's a new convert at this point. She's in a brand new place. She knows nobody. She is hungry. She is homeless. She is widowed as a young woman. Now, you have to admit, by almost anybody's standards, she has been dealt a really bad hand in life, right? I mean, we just have to admit that. On top of all of that, she's living with her mother-in-law. Now, I love my mother-in-law. If you're watching, Susie, I, I love you. I, I don't want to live with my mother-in-law, all right? So she's living with the mother-in-law. She's homeless. She's hungry. She's a widow. All of these things. It's a raw deal. And yet, her faith is never deterred. It's never deterred. Ruth, Ruth is teaching us here what we see so often throughout all of the scriptures, and that is that oftentimes God, God will take his people through the famine so that they might experience him as the great refuge or the great provider. Church, how, how are we to ever know of God's comfort if we never walk through a season of loss or pain in our life? How, how are we to ever experience God as deliverer if we never need deliverance from anything in our lives? And so truth number one this morning is this. Believer, don't ever lose faith in the famine. Don't lose faith in the famine. It would have been real easy for Ruth to get to Bethlehem and just throw her hands up and say, God, listen, I, I chose to follow you. And it, I, I left all of my, my gods and I left my, my family and I, I left my source of income, God, and I've been faithful to you and I show up to Bethlehem and we're, we're still hungry and we're still homeless and I'm still poor. I am 
done. I'm so, I'm so done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go back to Moab. It would have been really easy for her to call up her sister-in-law, Orpah, right? And say, hey, girl, things aren't going the way that I thought they were going to go here. Do you have some room for me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be coming back to Moab. Let's go out tonight. Not, none of that from Ruth ever. She is a woman of unshakable faith. Her faith is not rattled by her circumstances. And listen, in a world, even the church world, where we are consistently taught, wrongly, I might add, even in many churches and by many misguided pastors, that listen, if you, if you just love God enough, if you just have enough faith, he's gonna take care of all the problems in your life. If you just have enough faith, man, God is gonna make you wealthy and he's gonna make you healthy and he's gonna make you happy. And as we hear that just on repeat in our culture, it's important for us to understand this because just because God is walking us through a famine in life does not mean that he has forgotten about us. And I just wanna say to you, like if, that, if that's where you are at this point in your life, you, you just need to know that God is up to something. And I don't, know, I don't know what he's up to in your life, but here's what I know. I know that he's ultimately going to use it for your good and his glory. Listen, that, that's real faith. Real faith shows itself in the famines of life more than it ever will in the seasons of abundance. And so I think as we, as we observe Ruth here, as we watch her in this difficult circumstances, I think we can kind of extrapolate three marks or three distinctives of what real faith or what authentic faith is. And I'm just gonna quickly walk you through these, okay? So three marks of real faith. Number one is real faith trusts. Trust. See, Ruth has this, this deep trust in God, right? She, she just leaves everything that she's ever known behind. She just kind of jumps into the deep end of the swimming pool and she just, she just trusts that God's not gonna let her drown, She's got this deep sense of trust. And again, she's a new believer, only been walking with God for a short amount of time, but she knows enough about God that she knows she can trust him with her life. And so real faith just has this element of deep, unshakable trust. The second kind of mark of real faith is that real faith acts. Real faith is not passive faith. Real faith is not lazy faith. As one pastor I heard said, faith, faith is not praying for a ditch while you lean on a shovel, all right? That's not, he already gave you the answer to your prayer. You need to get to work, right? Ruth didn't sit under a bridge and cry all day. She got up and she went out and she got to work and she used her abilities that God had given her and God honored her active faith. So real faith. Genuine faith is not only trusting, but it's active. And then finally, I think we can see that real faith rests. See, in the whole story of Ruth, as she walks through traumatic experience after traumatic experience, there's never a hint of panic with Ruth. There's never a time where we get the sense that, that Ruth is in a panic. There's never a time when most of us would be freaking out that there's never a time that we see Ruth lose it, right? There's never this scene where she goes, Naomi, we're gonna die. What are we gonna do? Why did you bring me here? Why is God? There's never, there's never any of that. There's this beautiful calmness about this woman. 
just this, this confident assurance that God's got this. And it's beautiful. So if you want to do a health check on your own faith and kind of see where you are spiritually from a health perspective, I think these three marks are a pretty good barometer whereby we can measure where our faith is. Now back to the narrative, verse three. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So notice the narrator goes, she happened to come to the field of Boaz. And in the Hebrew, it's this idea of she just so happened to come to the field of Boaz. This is, a, this is a Hebrew idiom for she just so happened to walk to Boaz's field. Wink, wink, right? Just so happened. She got lucky. The narrator actually is trying to point out to us the invisible hand of God at work here. And the narrator is saying to us, man, where, where you see coincidence, where you see luck, you're actually seeing the hand of God at work. It's, it's, it's sort of like when, when I met Cheryl, my, my wife. And so um, I became a follower of, of Jesus as a sophomore in college, and I was at one university, and I felt like I just needed to get away from the influences that were around me. And so I just randomly chose some small private college for no good reason. I knew a couple of people there. And so I, I just so happened to end up at this college that I'd never heard of before. And it just so happened that I got a job on the campus gym. And so that meant that I, I, I had to be there before all of the rest of the students got there to get things ready. And so it just so happened one day that I was by myself, or I thought I would be by myself working out in the gym because none of the other students were there, but it just so happened that the swim team was also there early, and it just so happened that Cheryl ended up coming to the gym to work out in what she also thought would be an empty gym, and it just so happened that she was impressed with the size of my muscles, and it just so happened that we're now married with three kids. And all of that, all of those events seemed very happenstance to me at the moment, but I can look back now and see the fingerprints of providence all over my life. And that word providence is just kind of a big fancy biblical word that means divine care. That God is actively working behind the scenes in ways that we cannot see or always perceive to care for, protect, and love his sons and daughters. I heard one pastor describe it this way. I thought it was helpful. He said, God has two hands with which he engages the world with. He has the hand of miracles, right? And, and that's the hand that we all love to see. That's when we pray for something in a very specific way and God just shows up in an unexplainable way and he does these crazy, amazing things and people get healed and all these awesome things happen in our lives and we love to see that and we believe that God still does miracles today and we praise him when he does those things and yet God also has another hand which we call the silent hand of providence. The silent hand of providence. And the author wants us to see that the silent hand of providence is just as real in our lives and in this world as his hand of miracles. And so truth number two this morning is this. Number two, friend, 
learn, we must learn to press into God's loving hand of providence. See, when you can't understand what in the world God is doing in your life, what you can do is learn how to lean into and press into his character. And see, when we're walking through a storm in life, when we're walking through a, a season of famine in our life, it, it, it almost, for, for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in, in Jesus, for, for, for those of us who know him and love him, this almost should build a sense of anticipation in our lives. Like, what is God up to? Like he's walking me through this storm. He's walking me through this famine for a very specific reason and purpose. Like, what's he about to do in and through my life? And I can't answer that question for you. I don't know what he's up to, but I do know that it will ultimately turn out for your good because he is a good father. Verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So you, you should be hearing like the Rocky theme music playing in your mind right now or Star Wars or whatever, you know, hero movie you're into. That word there in Hebrew is meant to kind of elicit that response. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered back, the Lord bless you. So we learned something about Boaz right here. We learned that working for Boaz must have been kind of like working for Chick-fil-A. The Lord bless you. It's my pleasure. He, this is a man who loves the Lord. Boaz has not compartmentalized his life. And see, far too many of us, I'm convinced, in the Western culture, we keep our faith compartmentalized to an hour on Sunday morning or to the 15 minutes that we have our quiet time and we pray and we read the word in the morning or maybe we go to small group on Tuesday night or a Bible study or whatever it is. And then the rest of the week in our, in our Western mind is, well, the rest of our week is for work. The rest of our week is for, for school or classes or sports or Netflix or whatever. But the reality is that our, our faith should bleed into every single area of our lives. Our faith should bleed into the marketplace. It should bleed into our neighborhoods, into soccer practice, into hanging out with our classmates. Now, I'm not saying that you ought to be weird about it. I'm not saying that you ought to walk into your classroom or your office tomorrow and go, Lord bless you all, right? But what I am saying is that we need to get away from compartmentalizing our faith from real life because our faith is real life. See, your job, if you have a job or if you're younger, if you're in high school or middle school, you're in college, you're, you're school, you need to understand that that is, that is your gospel platform that the Lord has given you. It is not inconsequential or by accident that you work where you work or you go to school where you go to school. That is your gospel platform platform. And like Boaz, we should learn to leverage whatever platform God has given us in this stage of our lives to leverage his gospel and his kingdom as Boaz uh, models for us. Verse five, then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, who, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please, please let me glean and gather among the sheep after the reaper. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for one little short rest. And so Boaz is there. He's looking out over his operation in the morning and he notices somebody in his field that he's never seen before. And so he calls his foreman over. He calls his VP over and he says, hey, who is that woman? And his foreman tells him, hey, that, that's Ruth, the, the Moabite. She came back with Naomi and, and she came this morning, early this morning and politely asked if she could, she could get some of the food here, some of the grain here. And man, she's been working all day long. She's out working our reapers, man. She, she took one little short break and she's still out there just grinding away. So we see, we're about to see really the first encounter between Boaz and Ruth in verse eight. Watch this. Then Boaz, he, apparently he walks over to her. And Boaz said to Ruth, now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young man not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, just go over to the vessels and drink whatever you want from the, what the young men have drawn. And so here we see the beginning of grace from Boaz to Ruth. And some have suggested perhaps the first pickup line in history. <laughs> so, so single guys, you might just want to tuck this one in your back pocket. Boaz goes, hey, baby. Glean in my field. Don't glean in nobody else's field. You glean in my field all you want, right? And he's given her provision, saying whatever you need for your physical needs, you can have here. All the food you want, all the water you need, it's gonna be right here, but that's not all. He's not just giving her provision. Notice he also gives her protection. Right, and he says to her, listen, I've, I've already told all the young guys that work for me, I went to them this morning and I said, boys, Boys, you know I love you, but if you lay a finger on Ruth, they will never find your body. <laughs> you touch her and they will never find you, boys. The Lord be with you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. He provides, he protects for Ruth. Now, men, men, men in the room, let me just, I'm gonna talk to the guys in here just, just for a second. So, ladies, you guys can just listen in on this conversation. I want, I want, I want you to understand, if you're a man in this room, that this, this is God's expectation of you as a man. You, you are to lovingly provide, protect, and cherish the daughters of the king that he places in your life, namely your wife and your daughters. So man, I, I, want, I want you to hear this. In a, in a culture that teaches us to objectify and use women God steps onto the scene of history and he says, no. You are, you are to love, you are to provide, you are to protect, you are to cherish my daughters as treasures. And so man, I, I, I want you to hear this this morning. You, you cannot love God well and mistreat the women that he puts in your life. Is that clear? Do I need to keep going on that? You cannot love God well and mistreat the women, his daughters, that he places in your life. Now, ultimately, Boaz is what Bible scholars call a Jesus type. 
a Jesus type or a foreshadowing of Jesus, which means that Boaz is showing us in this story the kind of savior and redeemer that Jesus is to us, that he is our provider, that he is our protector. So in a real sense, the book of Ruth's purpose, and really the purpose of every book in the Bible, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the point of it all is to point our affections to Jesus. It's the point of it all. Now, I want you, to, I want you to, to, to look at Ruth's response to seeing this level of grace showered on her in her life after she's been through traumatic experience after traumatic experience in her life. Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land. And you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you. Now notice, Boaz is not pointing her to his grace. Boaz is pointing her to God's grace here. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord. He's pointing her affections and her heart back to God. He says, don't look at me. This is God's grace through me. It's not me. Given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Her response to grace is amazement and awe. She just falls down on her face, which in this culture was a sign of respect and gratitude. And she's like, Boaz, why me? Why, why have you shown me this, this grace and this mercy and this fa favor? Ruth is moved to her core when she experiences grace. She doesn't deserve it. She knows she doesn't deserve it. She's awestruck here. And as we read this, we, we kind of have to wonder how long it's been since Ruth has heard a kind word like this. We kind of have to wonder how, how long it's been since someone spoke an encouragement into her heart. The way Boaz is treating her and speaking to her, man, this is, this is balm to her wounded soul at this point. She's amazed. I was at a pastor's conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I went to a, a breakout session uh, led by a lady named Jen Wilkin. And um, by the way, uh, one of the best Bible teachers on the planet right now, highly recommend uh, her to you. But she did a, she did a, a breakout session uh, entitled all, The All Deficiency of the Western Culture. The All Deficiency of the Western Culture. And in this talk, she noted that uh, human beings are the only mammals that get goosebumps when we feel awe. Every other, every other animal on the planet only gets goosebumps when they feel terror. We actually get goosebumps because we can feel the emotion of awe. And so Jen Wilkins said she, she travels uh, not just the country, really the world, and she speaks um, largely to huge groups of uh, mainly women and, and young girls. And she was telling us that as she speaks to these packed out conference centers, that what she tells these ladies is that what they lack most in life 
is not better, self in, not better self-esteem. She tells him, what you lack most is not better self-esteem. What you lack most is awe. That's what you lack most in life. And so this uh, piqued my curiosity, and so I went back and uh, looked up some, some studies on this. There have actually been quite a few studies done on this. Uh, Psychology Today, uh, which is not a bastion of uh, like Christian philosophy, um, they published an article that says this after the study they did. It says, uh, all appears to enhance individuals' feelings of belonging, generosity, spirituality, and humility. Physical health also seems better when individuals feel more awe. People even are more likely to help someone in need after an awe experience. A study, another study I looked at from UC Berkeley, also not known as a bastion of Christian theology. Um, This is what they said. They said they recently discovered a connection between awe deprivation and physical and mental health. They concluded their study by saying that humans need a daily dose of awe. (laughs) Church, we, we are a people suffocating from awe deprivation and we don't even realize it. We were created for awe. Awe is this feeling that we get when we are in the presence of something vast or great that we can't completely wrap our minds around. It's, it's looking over the, the vastness of the Grand Canyon or it's hiking on the Blue Ridge Parkway and looking up at a 70-foot beautiful cascading waterfall down, down into a beautiful pool of water surrounded by beautiful trees. All is walking through the woods and seeing a beautiful color colorful flower blooming in the middle of the woods in the middle of winter. We are moved to awe by music. We are moved to awe by art. We are moved to awe by incredible sporting feats, right? That's, that's why we pack thousands of people into little arenas to watch Duke basketball teams or Alabama football teams or whatever. That We are a people in search. We are a people that need to be awed and we were created to be awed. And yet all of these wonderful things in our world that bring us awe were ultimately set to point us to the source of all awe, the source of all goodness and the source of all beauty. And that is found only in God himself, the fountainhead of everything that is good and beautiful and everything that causes awe in our hearts. And so truth number three this morning is this, the cure for your awe-deprived heart and my awe-deprived heart is to gaze on the beauty of the gospel. Friend, your, your soul, your mental health, your physical health in some real way actually depends on this. And so I just wanna ask you, when, when's the last time that you just sat in awe or stood in awe or bowed down on your face in awe, laid down in, in awe, just dumbfounded at the fact that there's actually a God who loves you, loves you, knows you. And he came to, to take all the broken pieces of your life and put them back together in a way that you never could and give you hope and forgiveness and redemption and a new life through the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. And when when is the last time that you just sat in awe of who God is and what he's done on your behalf?
Because the reality is when we contemplate who God is and his character and his nature and what the gospel has accomplished on our behalf, that should on some level do to us what grace did to Ruth in Ruth chapter two. That is the only appropriate response to grace. Like, God, I can't, I can't believe, God, that you, you know me. Like, you know all the dark recesses of my heart and the thoughts that I have that I pray nobody else ever knows that I have. You know all that about me, and you choose to love me anyway. Like, God, why have you even taken notice of me? Much less given me your favor. I've done nothing to earn this. God, thank you. God, I'm in awe of who you are. I'm in awe of your goodness. I'm in awe of your grace and your forgiveness. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you had that experience that Ruth had? Because that ought to be our response. But we've got to gaze at the right thing in order to experience this. One more thing that I, that I don't want you to miss and then we're, we're gonna be done. You, have, you may have noticed every time the narrator mentions Ruth in this story, the author always notes that Ruth is a Moabite. You never notice that? Like it doesn't just say Ruth did this or Ruth went here. It always says Ruth the foreigner, or Ruth from Moab, or Ruth the Moabite. Even in this story, Ruth herself, when she's just awestruck at grace, she mentions to Boaz that she's a foreigner, that she's from Moab. And I think what's going on here is that the author doesn't want us to miss that this woman, who will soon be in the lineage of Jesus himself, one of the matriarchs of our faith, the author does not want us to miss that this woman, Ruth, was a former idol worshiper. And she was a pagan woman steeped undoubtedly in all sorts of dark sins. Listen, Ruth did not come to the table with a squeaky clean past. She just didn't. In fact, she may be the most unlikely person for God to choose to be in the lineage of the one who would come to redeem all of his people. And so what the author wants us to take from that is this, and this is our final point this morning, number four, God delights, it gives him joy in using unlikely people in extraordinary ways. So if you're here this morning and you think even for a moment that God cannot or God will not or God doesn't want to use you because of where you came from or who your family is or what your past looks like or what you've done, if that's where you are, I want you to know you could not be more wrong. God delights, it gives him joy to use the most unlikely of people to accomplish the most incredible things in his kingdom. And so we're, we're kind of left at this point in the narrative wondering, well, what's, what's gonna happen to Ruth and Boaz? Are they gonna get together? Spoiler alert, they're about to have their first date, but you're gonna have to come back next week for that. It starts to get a little spicy next week. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be good the next couple of weeks. But here's what I wanna close with. Ruth is learning that God's silence is not his absence. Even as a young believer, she's not been following God for long, but she already understands, she already knows enough about God to know that his silence does not mean his absence. And so in the silence, we also must learn to hold on to his promises. He is our great refuge. He is our provider. He is our protector. Even when things seem like they're spiraling out of control in our lives, they are all actually very much under his control. As one young pastor several years ago, I heard um, say he, he had just been diagnosed with, with terminal cancer. At the time, he had a, a wife and three little kids. 
And he said, in those days, in those moments, God's providence, God's sovereignty was like a warm blanket on a cold winter night. I could just snuggle up and sleep like a baby because I knew God was in control. When the storm is raging in your world, when you're walking through that famine, you need a great refuge. And I'm just telling you, if your refuge is your own strength, if your refuge is your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your job, or any other thing, eventually that refuge is gonna come crashing down around you. No, you need a greater refuge. And I wanna just read you, we're gonna finish with, I wanna read you part of Psalm 91, likely penned by King David, who knew a thing or two about walking through the storms of life. This is what Psalm 91 says, this will be on the screens for you. It says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. That's the outside of a bird's wing. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. And I just wanna say, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to know you need a great refuge. And that great refuge is only gonna be found in knowing God through Jesus. And so if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't begun an actual, real, living, dynamic relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus, I want you to know you can start that today. In fact, I would say to you, you ought to start that today. There's no reason for you not to begin that journey today. And if you're here and you're already there, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, I would just say, man, let's, let's lean into, let's collectively press into the great refuge that is our God, even in the famines of life, because he is good and he is worthy of our trust and our awe. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, thanks for being our great refuge, God, even in difficult times, even in the storms of life, God, thank you. Thank you not only for working in miraculous ways, God, and we, we love when you do that. We love when you show up in ways that can't be explained, and we celebrate that, and we worship that, God, but we also realize that many times you work in this world and in our lives through your hand of silent providence and care. You're always at work. You're always at work. As a song we just sang, you're always at work in us and around us, God. When we can see it, when we can't see it, God, would you help us to trust in you even in those difficult seasons of life? Father, we love you. We love you. We pray all of these things in the name of the one true, redeem, one true redeemer, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.